Hey, thanks for joining us on the C3 Oxford Falls podcast. If you'd like more information on C3 Church, please visit myc3church.net. We hope you enjoy this message. I gotta tell you, I'm so thrilled to let you know Pilgrims, our newest C3 music album is already here. The songs on this album are for our journey in Jesus. No matter where we are on that journey, in the valley or on the mountaintop, His love is unchanging and so should our praise and worship be. Cannot wait for you to hear it. Head to iTunes or Google Play to download it today. Guys, please have a seat. It's a real uh, pleasure and delight to be able to have this morning here with you. And um, for any of you who are watching this online or later, I'd just like to remind you that the camera adds 10 pounds. Uh, in my case, I seem, it feels more like 20 to 30. And um, we're going to be dealing with actually a whole series of um, different things. Um, any of you who are at the chapel service, we were actually looking with something different this morning. We're going to be looking here on the subject, trying to answer the question of has the Christian faith failed? And we're going to be looking at three main areas where people think the Christian faith may um, or, or perhaps will fail, and then trying to look at a response to each one of those. This evening, uh, we'll be taking something very different. We'll be trying to answer the question, why is it that in today's culture, the three most powerful words in the English language seem to be, I am offended. Uh, and if you want to have some fun, if you work for a major global organization from here, I suggest tomorrow morning, send an email to the head of your HR department with those three words in the subject line, and you will find you get a very, very swift response. So we'll be looking at why is it that we seem to be living in an increasingly hostile and divided culture, and what on earth can we do about that? How do we actually understand this huge cultural shift that we're actually living through? But what I want to do this uh, morning uh, while I'm with you is, I say, try to look at three areas in which people feel the Christian faith either has failed, or maybe if you think of yourself as a Christian, perhaps live in fear that it will fail. Now, one of the challenges when you're speaking into an area like this is you can either go so broad, you don't go into any depth, or you can get so specific, you miss out a massive area. So uh, there are various things that we won't touch on, but I'm gonna try and group them together in three just general areas, because we need to know, and it's very important, whether the Christian faith is actually true, or whether it's just something that that we want. Now, for me, my, my conversion was slightly unusual in that I wasn't, I spent a lot of my childhood in the Middle East. I wasn't raised in a Christian culture for that reason. Uh, when I first heard about the Christian faith, I liked the Christians I met. But when I actually came to the conclusion the Christian faith was real, it actually made me feel very depressed. Because what I realized was I didn't want to be a Christian. Um, I felt about Christians the same way I felt about communists, that they had nothing, but they wanted to share it with me. And I was very, very suspicious of the offer they seem to have made. So, therefore, there are minds, we all work in different ways. Sometimes we're coming at it from the opposite direction. Does that make sense? We're desperate for it to be true. We're wondering if it's true. We're thinking, is it too good to be true? So we all come at these things from very different angles. And what I want to try and do, as I say, is just take three just broad general categories and just have a little look into each one of them. Now, the first one is philosophical. Now, when we're talking about the philosophical issue that maybe the Christian faith will fail or perhaps has failed, what we're basically saying is, look, this, what you believe, it isn't true or real. It, it isn't actually there. That's why it's a faith. That's why you need faith. When I first became a Christian as I was traveling around the world, people would often say to me, Michael, I'm so happy for you that you're a Christian. 
And especially people who knew me and could see the change in my life, they'll say, Michael, this is, this is great. And, and then they would say, I wish I could believe what you believe, but I can't. And I heard that a lot. I heard it a lot from different people, different countries. And I can remember thinking, what do you mean by this? And after a while, what I realized they were saying to me was, Michael, I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you're happy. But the reason you're happy is because of Jesus. And Jesus isn't real. Now, what do you call people who believe in things that aren't there? And the answer is, mad people. So what they're basically saying is, Michael, you are insane. But the main thing is that you are happy and insane. And I'm so desperate to know the kind of joy that you seem to know. I'm so desperate to know that in my life. I would also embrace insanity to join you. And I wish I could. I'm trying, but I, I just can't get there. Now, this reveals something which is very, very, very telling. What it means is, is that the way the world defines faith is faith is believing in something of which you're not sure is true or real. That's faith. That's why you need it. Strong faith is suspecting what you believe actually isn't true, but being able to believe it anyway, because that requires more of it, right? And on that definition, the strongest possible faith you could have would be knowing something isn't true and still able to believe it, because that must require like bucket loads of the stuff. Now, the Bible teaches that faith is a gift, but it is not the gift of stupidity. That is not what faith is. Now, in Hebrews 11:6, it says, and anyone who wants to please God must know that he is and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Again, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What is this saying? Well, let's just say one thing up front. Whenever you read the Bible in the New Testament, there's only one word which we translate faith. It's a Greek word, it comes, it's pistis. You have to be careful with that tea if you've been drinking a little bit, because it's important. Okay, pistis. And it's derived from the verb pito. It means to be persuaded. It literally means to be sure of someone and to be able to put your trust in them. Now, there's another word that the Greeks use for faith called nomizo, and, but that's a different word. That comes from the Greek nomos, which means law. When the ancient Greeks and the classical Greeks talked about their faith, they talked about nomizo, nomos. So if you say to them, why do you believe? The answer will be, well, my father believed. Why did your father believe? Well, look, my grandfather believed. Why did your grandfather believe? Well, my great-grandfather believed. Eventually, they're going to say, look, we're Greeks. That, that's what we believe here. That's what we've always believed. It's my custom. It's our habit. It got passed down the line. That word is never translated faith in the New Testament. That is not what faith is. The New Testament is almost unique in using this word for faith, pistis, derived from the verb to be persuaded. It means you're sure something is true and real and you put your trust in it. Look, if one of you were to come to me and say, Michael, look, I have faith in our Australian Prime Minister. Now, regardless of whether your politics are right or wrong, when you come to me and you say that, I have faith in him, you're saying two things. Number one, they actually exist. Even if you didn't want them to exist, tough. That make sense? And number two, you think you can trust them. You think they're gonna keep their promises and be true to their word. If they betray you and they break that promise, you'll describe them as being faithless. You might even say they've broken faith with me. They've broken faith with the country. We use that kind of language. We use that even of our lovers and our spouses. Are they faithful? Or did they betray me? Did they break faith? 
That is how the Bible uses the word faith. That's what it's saying in Hebrews 11.6. Faith isn't hoping God exists, wishing he exists, thinking he exists, wouldn't it be nice if he exists? It's knowing that he is, knowing that he exists. That's a statement of reality. Even if you don't want to believe in him, he's not going away. And secondly, that you can trust him, that you can trust his promise, his word. You can trust his character. This is absolutely essential. If you're not persuaded as to the nature of God's character that he is good, you're going to find it very hard to trust him when times are hard. Because you're going to be wondering, well, maybe he doesn't actually intend good for me, even though it's so hard for me right now. And this is why the Christian faith always invites questions. How do you discover what is true and real? Well, the answer is you ask questions about it. If you're lying about something, the last thing you want someone to do is to ask you questions about it, right? If you're trying to hide the truth about something, disguise the reality of it, the last thing you want people to do is ask you questions. You just want them to take what you say for granted. But the question, faith, biblical faith, invites questions. It's how we get to know whether something is true and real. Do you know that reality of God in your life? Christian faith isn't simply some kind of strange, wishful thinking. Is actually based in the reality of God who has revealed himself, who's made himself known. Do you know him? It's interesting, nowhere in the Bible does it describe faith as a leap into the dark. It's always a stepping into the light. And what happens when you move from darkness to light? Well, when everything's dark, you can't see. That make sense? So whatever you do in the dark is, you know, you've got no idea. When you turn the lights on, the whole point is you can actually see everything now. That's why you'll never see in the New Testament, you'll never hear someone sharing their testimony saying, yeah, yeah, you know what, I, I used to be able to see and I was surrounded by light and truth and thank goodness the preacher went long enough and God put the lights out and finally I could make that great leap. You'll never hear a Christian talk like that. If you ever listen to someone who became a, became a Christian, they'll say, you know what, I was, I was looking, I was searching, there was something that wasn't there and then I was talking to someone or I was, I was in church and it was all, like, all of a sudden it was like, I was the only person in the room and every word being spoke began to describe my life, my reality and I could finally see what was going on. It's always a response and a stepping, stepping into the light. Now this is very important because sometimes people may come and they'll say to me, Michael, I, I, think, I, may be, I think I've lost my faith. Now that's a very interesting phrase and, and we have to be really careful with it because you cannot lose what you never had. By definition, that's not possible. So when we talk about losing faith, we have to ask ourselves one of two questions. Does that mean that I once knew this reality in my life? I once knew God, I once knew Christ, I knew his presence in my life. We had this relationship and it's gone. Or are we saying, look, I I, I wanted to believe this, I was thinking about it, I was raised in it maybe even, but as I've gone through life, I've been questioned and I've realized it's not true, it's not real. It's not so much that you've lost something that you once had, it's you're coming to a realization that's never really been there in the first place. Look, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, but you're looking, I would encourage you, ask questions. This church is filled with friendly people who would like nothing more than to sit down with coffee and talk to you and try and speak with you about the questions you have. As a matter of fact, If you've been invited here today and you're a guest or you're watching this online and you're a hardcore atheist, you must take the church up on this offer. You must. You are morally committed to do it. Because as an atheist, if you're really committed to it, you believe what this church is doing by and large is wrong. And the really bad news about this church is that they actually send Christians and missionaries to other places to go and convert them. And you must believe that's very wrong. 
And they have to use money to do that. If you make them take you out for coffee and talk to you about Jesus, you're taking away some of the money that they would have used to send a missionary somewhere else. So it's time for you to take a hit for the team, okay, and make them spend some money on you and ask them to ask, answer your questions about the Christians of this faith and who Jesus Christ is. Okay, so take them up on that offer. It's, I would encourage you to do that. Truth and reality has no fear of questions. It's how we figure out. So the kind of questions, well, is Jesus God? Did he ever claim to be? How can we know? Is there any evidence? Those are all great questions and I would urge you, I would encourage you, ask them, ask them. Look, Jesus Christ did claim to be God, but claiming to be God isn't, isn't particularly difficult and not that special. You know the story of a psychiatrist who got transferred from one psychiatric hospital to another and he's now getting to know his new patients and he comes into this ward and he comes to the first bed and he says to the guy, who are you? And the guy looks at him and says, my name is Napoleon. And the psychiatrist says, that's interesting. Who told you you're Napoleon? And he said, God told me. And the guy in the bed next to him said, I did not. <laughs> Look, anybody can claim to be God. The question is, how do you meaningfully sustain such a claim? How do you know it's real? Well, one of the ways in which Jesus Christ claimed to sustain his claim to who he was was through the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, some people say, well, look, Jesus was a really clever guy. He, he lived his life in order to fill out these prophecies that he knew of. But some of these prophecies concern where he was born and who his parents would be. That's something very too hard to control on the other side of the womb. <laughs> look into it. Ask yourself, is the evidence there? Can we know? Now, I think there are very solid grounds for the Christian faith for it to be true and real. Don't let that put you off, don't be scared. If you're a Christian and you find yourself, you're wrestling with questions, well that's how you're gonna learn. That's when you say, well look, I, I, I wanna figure this out, I wanna know that. There are these amazing things that were invented a while ago called books. And here's the interesting thing. The questions you're wrestling with, people have asked before. And some of them have even answered them pretty well. They've even written books to make them available for you to read. So I'm gonna make you an offer here. If you've been invited here as a guest because you were promised it would be interesting and now you feel lied to because you've realized it's not gonna be. <laughs> and there is a question that you're deeply wrestling with. Come and speak to myself or to one of my colleagues. I have uh, Jim Wigglesworth who's stood somewhere here at the very, very back in his white shirt and two colleagues, Dan and Jordan, come and ask, ask us and if that's you, and you're wrestling with a question, tell us what your question is. We'll talk to you a little bit about it and then we're gonna try and send you a book to answer that question for you. Okay, it's a free gift, you can have it. Okay, that's for everyone here who isn't a Christian. Now there may be one or two Christians who are sitting here thinking, I want one of those free books. <laughs> you're momentarily contemplating having a crisis of faith <laughs> so you can come up and claim it. And to you, I want to say, there will be a day of judgment and you're gonna be held to account for that. So don't do that. Now, the second general broad area where we feel the Christian faith may fail is existential. Now, this is more to do, if you like, with our experience. Now, <laughs> I sometimes joke there are two very broad categories within this. These are people who've gone to church and found out they didn't like the pastor, or in some cases, pastors who went to church and figured out they didn't like the people. <laughs> Now, it's actually much more complex than that. 
But let's just start with that first one. If one of the reasons you think the Christian faith has failed is you've been to church, you've met Christians and they've let you down, I wanna encourage you, please don't let that put you off. One of the earliest parts of the New Testament, the Bible sort of split into two bits. There's a part that was written before Christ came and then the part that was written afterwards, the second part we call the New Testament. And there's some scholarly debate about what is the earliest part of the New Testament, which of the books in the New Testament was written first. And one of the books which is in the running to be the very first piece of Christian literature ever written is a, le- is a book called Galatians. It's a letter written by one of the first Christians to one of the first Christian churches. And in that letter, amongst other things, the writer of that letter has two big concerns. The first concern is, what is the true Christian message rather than the false Christian message? And secondly, what is the true Christian life rather than a false Christian life? Now, he addressed more issues than that in it than that, but those are two big themes. And he actually addresses this issue. And he says, look, people may claim to be Christian, but that doesn't mean they are. He says, when you encounter a Christian, he said, there should be a flavor to their life. And he describes that fruit. He uses a singular word, it's a fruit, but it has a complex flavour. He says the fruit of the Spirit that you should see in the Christian life is one of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. He says that when you taste a Christian, that's what their life should taste like. In other words, the writer of this letter is looking at his critics and he's saying, bite me. But he's saying it in a really nice way. He's saying, if you truly want to know whether Jesus Christ changed my life, come and you should taste the flavour of my life. Come and taste it. Now, he then goes on to say, but if you taste, someone's claiming to be a Christian and you bite into their life and you taste anger, rage, malice, lust, jealousy, you have every right to question the reality of what they're claiming. He's inviting people to say, look, think about this. If Jesus Christ changes lives, then look for a changed life. It's right at the very heart. Please don't let some past experience put you off. About uh, six weeks ago, I was in a taxi driver, in a taxi cab in Oxford in England. And I was talking with the taxi driver and he was asking what what I did and he heard I traveled a lot and and he said, where are you off to next? And I said, I'm off to Nigeria. And he said, I'm from Nigeria. And so I said, are you Christian, Muslim? I said, do you have any belief? And he said, well, I used to be a Christian, but not anymore. And then he told me this story about, you know, this bad church experience he'd had. He says, you know, when I left, I I actually moved to England. I want to get away from it. I have no interest in it whatsoever. And I'm just not interested. And I said to him, tell me, as a taxi driver, has anyone ever given you any fake money? And he said, yes. And I said, tell me, does that mean when we get to the end of this journey and I offer you a 10 pound note, you'll reject it because in the past someone gave you something which is fake? And he paused and he said, no. I said, please don't reject the offer of something real. Simply because in the past, someone's tried to slip you a fake. You, if you have been hurt by the church in the past, I am deeply sorry. But please don't assume that everything that claims to be Christian is genuinely is. Look for the fruit of it. Look for the reality of it. When I was in Nigeria, I've just spent some time, I was speaking with him this morning with a friend of mine called Ben Kawashi. Ben lives up in Josh, he's the Archbishop for Northern Nigeria. If you don't know where Jos is, you may remember his town became famous when a group of Boko Haram guys came and kidnapped 276 school children and then ushered them off and sold them into slavery. Only 110 of them, I think, have been recovered, something like that. So that's where he lives. 
The day before we arrived to go visit him, a group of Islamic militants came, burnt down a church, killed everyone in it, and destroyed it just a few miles from where we were. And last night I was on the phone with him because the day before, just shortly after we left, another group came to five different villages, destroyed over five churches, burned alive hundreds of people. And one of the pastors from his church who took his wife to go up and console one of the pastors and his wife, whom almost every member of their church had been killed, the Boko Haram figured they were gonna do that and, and lay in ambush. And when he went into the pastor's house to console him, they attacked them and killed all of them in the home. There are people in this world who've so fallen in love with Jesus Christ, they're willing to lay down their life, life in service of others. His own house was broken into last night and they stole a lot of stuff out of his home. I don't know how he'll afford to replace it. And as they were taking the stuff away, there was a young man in, an, in the house which is yet unfinished. No windows, no doors. And he was there with his family. So he turned on his flashlight and shone it outside to see what was going on and was instantly shot and killed through the frameless window. Ben said he went to go and visit him yesterday morning and he said, I, he said, I couldn't even speak to her. He said, I was so overcome with emotion. I said, I couldn't even say one word. I just sat and cried with her. Who's gonna go back and see her again today? These are incredible people doing incredible things. What causes people to be willing to lay down their life like that? And the answer is, if you have met Jesus Christ, your heart can't be the same. You can't live the same way. Now, just a word for the Christians here. In the last service, they were kind enough to say they were gonna take up a love offering to give to me. And I'm told that you're gonna do that again in this service. But if you wanna to give to that love offering, every single penny of that offering is gonna to go to help those who've just lost their lives, the widows and the orphans in Joss, who now find themselves bereft, homeless, and with absolutely nothing. At the very least, we're gonna put windows and doors into the house of that widow so she can now raise her children. There has to be a different way for us to live. There has to be. And Jesus Christ changes the heart. That's what it means to become a Christian. Please, there are a lot of people out there claiming something which isn't true. Don't buy into it. Now, sometimes the source of our existential disappointment, if you like, is actually with God himself. It's not so much with the church, it's with him. Now, there are lots of ways this can happen, but generally speaking, it goes something like this. God, I've been trying to lead a good life. I've been working pretty hard holding up my end of the bargain. Where are you? I'm trying to be good, I'm trying to be kind, I'm trying to be nice to people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can, but you're not making it any easier. Where, I'm doing good for you, where's the good you're doing for me? And so now we feel we have this deep disappointment with God himself. Now, there's a very painful answer to this question and it isn't easy to give. Because when we say to God, look, I'm a good person, I'm doing my best, why are you being good to me? The most brutal answer to this is, sadly, there are no good people. Someone once came to Jesus and they said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, Jesus, you're good, you're going to heaven. I wanna be good, I wanna go to heaven too. What must I do to be good? And then Jesus looked at the person asking the question and says, why do you call me good? And then he says, no one is good but God alone. Now just run all of that together. If you have to be good to go to heaven and only God is good, who's going? No one. Your application to join the Trinity was actually turned down. <laughs> None of us meet the minimum entry requirement. Now the Bible's very sophisticated in what it says in this particular area. I find it fascinating. One of the things that privileges I have as I get to travel around the world very often is to speak to business leaders um, and sometimes to address the boards of large multinational companies. 
Given all the kind of financial scandals that have been happening in the last few years, sometimes we're talking about the subject of integrity. And a while ago, I was doing some research into this area, and I thought, I'm going to get online, and I'm going to watch what some of the world's leading professors at some of the world's top universities are saying about integrity. I wonder what they're saying. And I watched one of these lectures. I found it very controversial. I'll leave the university unnamed. It's one of the most famous business schools in the world, and the head of the school was there speaking to the students, and he said, it's been scientifically proved that all human beings are basically good. He said, when you put a human being under pressure, they'll always do the right thing. Now, all the students sat there nodding their heads and earnestly taking notes. A few weeks later, I was speaking to the world's largest accountancy firm with some of their global leadership in the room, and I quoted this. And when I said it's been scientifically proved people are basically good, you put them under pressure, they'll always do the right thing, all 300 of the senior leaders in that room started shaking their heads thinking, where does this guy live? Because that's not their experience of the world. Here's, here's what's much more realistic. You, most of us, especially when we're young, we dream of a good life. We dream of being good. Most of us, when we start out, we imagine, we, we imagine being respected by people because of the way we live. Does that make sense? Because of the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we treat other people. We, 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 we dream of being admired and respected. But as we go through life, we seem to make one compromise after another. We have to give in to this, we have to do that, and we suddenly find ourselves embracing things that we thought we weren't going to give in to. I said, all of us have the desire to do what is good, but actually we're not carrying it out. And very often, the things we don't want to do, we keep on doing, and the things we do want to do, we left undone. One of the chief accountants in the room said, that is brilliant. He says, how did you think of that? I said, I didn't. That's in Romans chapter seven. <laughs> Look, the Bible is very sophisticated about this. The Bible doesn't say we never see any good in anyone. My eldest daughter, um, she's 18, she's just finished actually doing a gap year with a group called 24-7. Are you familiar with that here in Australia? It's a prayer movement, she's absolutely loved it. But when, when she was, by the age of 14, she'd grown her hair all the way down to below the small of her back. So she had very, very, very long hair. And um, she, um, I was going away on a trip, I was, I was getting ready to go overseas and she came to me and she says, Daddy, you need to be prepared for a shock because w w when you come back, my hair's gonna be a lot shorter. Oh, okay. Anyway, I knew things were going to be interesting when I landed in the country. I hadn't even got home, and my wife rang me when I was still in the car, and she said, Michael, when you come home, you'll say nothing to Lucy, apart from, you're beautiful, and I love it. <laughs> so I knock on the door, thinking, what am I going to see? And then my daughter, Lucy, eldest daughter, opens the door, and her hair's been cut all the way up to here. And so I smile. I'm a man under authority. I'm doing what I'm told. <laughs> and I say, sweetheart, you look beautiful. I love it. Now, a couple of days later, my wife was out because she, um, my wife leads the cello section in an orchestra in Oxford. Um, that's her, her hobby. And so now I'm alone with my eldest daughter and watching TV, and I finally have the opportunity to ask the question I've been dying to ask for quite a while. <laughs> you know, so I start to just, I concentrate on my breathing, just slowly in and out. So, you know, I, I want to be calm. And I put a smile on my face because I don't want there to be any suggestion of criticism. Or, you know, I, don't want to, I can't afford to be misunderstood on this one. And when I feel I'm in that zone of peace, I casually turn to her as, and sort of say, so, you know, what inspired the, you know, the change in fashion? You know, were you bored? Do you want to try something new? And she said, well, she said six weeks ago, she said, I, I saw this documentary on TV about this charity that looks after six and seven-year-old girls who have leukemia. And they were saying that one of the hardest things they find is to find hair donors to give their hair so they can make wigs for these little girls. 
And so while I was away, she had a hairdresser come to her home and who plaited up her hair in a particular way and tied it off and then cut it and then mailed it off to this charity. And because her hair was so long, they were able to make three or four wigs for some of these girls. And as Lucy told me this, my eldest daughter, she's a very avid reader. And um, I said to her, sweetheart, do you remember when you read the book Little Women? And she said, yes. And there's a scene in that book where the heroine of that book, this very feisty woman, um, she cuts off her hair and sells it in order to give her mother money so that her mother can afford to go and visit her father who's dying in a military hospital thousands of miles from home. And as the mother takes the money from the daughter, the mother looks at the daughter and she says, sweetheart, your hair will regrow, but you'll be, never be more beautiful to me than you are right now. And as Lucy told me this story, I said, do you remember reading that book? And she said, yes. I said, the only thing I can think of to say is your hair will regrow, but you'll never be more beautiful to me than you are right now. When we, when, we, when we talk about our fallen human nature, it's not that we never see anything good in the human heart. It's much more confusing than that. In every human heart, we see this desire for nobility, goodness, and at the same time, in the same heart, we see anger, greed, malice, it's all mixed up together. Paul was right when he wrote the book of Romans. We have the desire to do what is good. We seem unable to carry it out. We, there are things that we wish we didn't do and yet somehow we keep on doing them. And he cries out at one point, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus is able to bring about both a transformation of the heart and a forgiveness for where we fail. So we don't need to cover up and pretend we're better than we are. We can freely admit, you know what? I'm just as broken and messed up as you. The only difference is I've encountered the person of Christ who's changed me and he's forgiven me and I'm now doing my very best to live with him. Christians are not perfect. We continue to mess up, but whenever we come before him, he's willing to forgive us. Do you know that forgiveness in your life? That's also what it means to be a Christian. It's to receive that forgiveness and know that transformation. It's incredible. Jesus Christ comes into this world as God and takes on into his heart all the bad stuff that's gone in ours. All the sin, all the badness. The, the, this, the, the, the book of Galatians talks about it very powerfully. The book of Galatians says there are two gospels, two good newses, except one of them isn't good news at all. He said the fake gospel is the gospel that says do good and God will bless you. And then the writer of the letter says something very powerful. He says, cursed is the person who preaches that and cursed it is the one who lives it. Imagine that. Imagine living in a way that you think will bring a blessing but it actually brings a curse. That's gonna bring a deep disappointment. Paul says that's the fake gospel. He says the true gospel is this. The true gospel is that Jesus Christ became a curse for you. All of the stuff that's gone wrong in your life, he's taken on in his. He's paid for you. He's offering you a new life in a new way. Accept that forgiveness from him. Allow him to transform you. Don't try to continue. Does that make sense? You know, in the flesh, what's begun in the spirit, allow him, have that encounter with him, welcome him, allow him to change and transform you. Seek his forgiveness. Your life will be different. But it's not about earning favour from God. It's about because you've already received his favour, you're living in a different way. Does that make sense? Please don't let any past disappointment take you away. Now the last third big area where we often feel the Christian faith has failed is moral. Now there's a huge amount that can be said about this and I'm not gonna have time to unpack it in enough de as much detail as I would like. I remember once speaking in a church and uh, the way they did it was they said, Michael, we want you to speak for 10 minutes and having heard me speak, you'll understand why they asked me to do that. And then they said, but after 10 minutes, could you do two and a half hours of Q&A? 
So I spoke for 10 minutes, and then for two and a half hours, I answered, tried to answer any question that people threw at me. And as we got towards the end, after the end of it, this lady came up to me and she said, I, I, I don't come to the church, but I, I enjoyed tonight. I said, oh, good. She said, but there's one thing that rather bothers me. I said, what is it? She said, you never said this expressly, but you seem to assume in your answers that there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. I said, that would be correct. She said, well, I could never become an intolerant person like you and say other people are wrong. That's why I'm a Buddhist. I said, oh. I said, you're a Buddhist. She said, yes. I said, are you a serious Buddhist? She said, I am. I said, tell me, didn't the Buddha say that the Vedas, the scriptures of the Hindu faith, that the Vedas are not a divine revelation? And didn't the Buddha say that the caste system, which is the center of Hinduism, is evil? And she said, he did say that. I read it this morning in my devotions. I said, well, look, if you're prepared to follow the Buddha when he says other people are wrong, why are you not prepared to follow Jesus when he says other people are wrong? She said, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> I, I said, look, I, I appreciate, you know, it's a difficult question, but it was an amazing privilege to pray with her the next day when she came back for a second time. We, we make a mistake here because we, 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 un, we, we don't understand something. When we bring this moral complaint about God, it goes something like this. And it will take, I say, it will take more time to unpack properly. But it basically goes like this. God, I thought you were loving. And that surely means that you just accept everything. But you also seem to pass judgment in your Bible and say things are wrong. But that means you're not loving. All that shows is in our culture, we've confused love and affirmation. They're not the same thing. Our culture honestly believes that if you love someone, you affirm them in everything they do and say. But that's not right. Sometimes the reason you say no to someone isn't because you don't love them, it's because you do. Yeah. When my five-year-old daughter comes to me and says, Daddy, please can I borrow the electric drill? <laughs> and I said no, that wasn't because I hated her. It's because I loved her. Now, when she went on to explain how disappointed she was because she wanted to play dentist with my two-year-old son, <laughs> I didn't say, oh, go on then. It's, you know, who am I to stand in your enjoyment? My, my refusal wasn't born out of hatred, it was born out of love. Exactly. When God says no to us, it's not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. As a matter of fact, we need to understand the nature of love, it just runs so deep. And if we overcome this moral objection, let me just say a few words about love. We, we need to understand that love is, is this complex thing. I don't know if any of you have read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Have any of you read that? Have any of you seen the six-part BBC adaptation done? Okay, if you haven't seen that, you're probably male and single. Um, if you have seen it, you will no doubt notice how much I look like someone called Mr. Darcy. Um, it's one of the most enduring love stories written in the English language in the last few hundred years. It just won't go away. It's been made into countless films, series. It's reread over and over and over again. It tells the love story between this very feisty and at times um, uh, sort of uh, overly confident young woman called Elizabeth and this rather proud man called Darcy. And Darcy falls in love with Elizabeth, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't realise it. And he comes to call on her one day to see her family and he's shown into the main room of the house and she's all alone, she's unaccompanied. And he immediately apologises because as an English gentleman, he cannot be alone in a room with a woman to whom he's not betrothed. And I'd like to say as the father of two daughters, I believe this is the only acceptable form of behaviour that there is. 
And so when he's shown in and he finds himself alone, he apologizes and he said, I had no, I, he says, I, I, I said, I did not know if I had known you were un, unaccompanied, I would not have called. And he bows to apologize, turns around and starts walking out the room. And he's halfway out the door when he stops. And then he turns around, he re-enters the room, he looks at her and he says, it will not do. My feelings cannot be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how much I ardently admire and love you. Now, gentlemen, listen carefully. That line is a winner. <laughs> However, he goes on to say that he loves her, even though it goes against his will, even though it goes against his reason, and even though it goes against his own better character. In other words, and, and then she rejects him, and of course, being a man, he, he can't understand why. So he asks for an explanation. He says, I may inquire of how you so easily reject me. And she said, you told me that you loved me, even though it went against your will, against your reason, and against your own better character. In other words, she's saying, you told me you loved me against all better judgment. You see, true love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment. True love exists in the presence of it. The, most of us are so desperate to be loved, we go around projecting an image of ourselves to other people wanting to be accepted by them. The trouble is people fall in love with the image and not with the reality. That's why you can be terribly rich, terribly famous, terribly beautiful, and terribly lonely. People only ever fall in love of the image and the aura around you. They never fall in love with the real you. But if there are a few people in this world who know the real you, they know your weaknesses, your failings, that bad side to your character, if there are people who know you that way and yet they still like you and love you, those are the most meaningful relationships you have. And when anything bad happens, and even more importantly, when anything good happens, they're the first people you want to tell. True love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment. True love exists in the presence of it. And that's precisely the way God loves us. That's exactly how he loves you. God makes a true judgment of every human heart. He sees all of the mess which is in here. And he says, that's wrong. But he loves you. And he stepped into this world and rescued his son, Jesus Christ. And the judgment and the punishment that should fall on our sin for us, he takes on unto himself. He puts himself in harm's way. He takes the consequence for us. He pays and he says, you know what you did? I've paid for it. I'm offering, here, take it. It's called grace. Take this, it's gonna pay for everything you've done. I have paid for you. That is how much he loves you. And it's impossible to encounter now his grace and ever be the same. It's one of those other things. It secures your forgiveness and it makes you fall so deeply in love with him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. The Bible says that when we were still God's enemies, even when we hated him, he loved us and came for us and he came for you. Hey everyone, what a joy it is to bring the Word of God to so many people all around the world every week. And I just love technology for that reason, that we're able to broadcast through television, through podcasts, through social media, and to bring Jesus into people's worlds in all kinds of ways. Obviously there are costs to that. There are uh, expenses in reaching out and accomplishing this preaching of the Gospel. And in the book of Romans, Paul says, how shall I go unless somebody send them? And he's talking about the beautifulness of, of the preaching of the Gospel, how it brings peace and joy into people's worlds. And so the people who are sending us into other people's worlds is you and the people of our congregations. And I'd love you to join with 
them and with us as partners, sending the Gospel throughout all the world through all these means that God has put in our hands. And as we partner together, I know that there will be thousands of people in heaven for eternity because of our efforts together. God has called us to do this and we depend on people to send us and support us in taking the Gospel to the world. I wanna say thank you for standing with us and believing God. I'm praying and asking God to touch you and to bless your seed that you sow so that you'll experience an incredible harvest in your lives in Jesus' Name, Amen. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this week's message from our church. Hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by using at C3 Oxford Falls.